Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Hey there, welcome to another edition of Strange Planet. And if you'd like to get deeper into Strange Planet, why not consider becoming a premium subscriber? It's real easy to do. Just click on the link in the episode notes, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. There are three premium subscriptions to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you. You gain access to commercial-free listening, bonus episodes that are produced, especially, exclusively, for premium subscribers, plus you get a subscription to my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. 
Well, we're hearing a lot about this uh, new emerging threat of uh, a possible pandemic coming out of China. We're hearing about uh, uh, pneumonia and uh, affecting young people. And it seems as if we haven't learned anything from the last pandemic. And uh, we have so much data from COVID-19. It's taught us how to diagnose and treat appropriately. Still today, the masses don't know what viruses are and how they spread. It's all as if the government and media would rather spread fear and confusion than educate the population. We are more than ready to face whatever the world throws at us. That's a quote from Dr. Michael J. Schwartz. And uh, he's been an entrepreneur since 1993. He owns and operates three medical clinics in both New Jersey and Florida. And his company was the first in New Jersey to start conducting COVID-19 testing. Over the course of his career, he's owned and operated many types of diverse companies. He's an accomplished private pilot, an avid New York Yankee fan. We won't hold that against him. <laughs> a former police officer, he developed and taught a course, The Secrets of Body Language and Communication to Private and Governmental Entities Worldwide, and he's performed stand-up comedy since his early 20s, and he performs regularly. And uh, the brand new book is called Fauci's Fiction, the book on COVID. Dr. Michael J. Schwartz, I'll call you Mike. How are you? Welcome. I'm well. Thanks for having me, Richard. Uh, just to be clear now, your doctorate is in business, not in medicine. So... To those people are saying, well, he's a business guy. He's an entrepreneur. Why are we listening to him talk about COVID and Fauci? You respond sure. how? Sure. Well, I, I have five degrees. I have a couple of medical certs as well. But uh, I mean, my my doctorate's more analytical. Actually, I have a paper in the uh, Library of Congress that I did my, some research on the CARES Act. And uh, we, we kind of fell into COVID by happenstance because we had been operating for years and doing respiratory pathogen panels. But uh, I think when you realize that the CDC and most of the medical community had it wrong, it might take an analyst to actually go through the data and figure out what's what with COVID. And that's uh, where we found ourselves. Right. Um, before we get into that, let's talk about what's happening in, in China. Um, it's, it's like, you know, here we go again. It seems like the media is trying to really, um, as you say, you know, foment fear and panic again, like, oh, it's another COVID coming our way. Uh, what, what is going on over there, do you suppose? And, and um, is it going to happen again? Well, I mean, I, we're always ripe for another pandemic. I mean, COVID was a pandemic, but uh, I think the media and the government entities that, that controlled it, I had to say control it, but had control over the narrative of it, really turned it into a pandemic. Because, you know, we realized early on that COVID wasn't that big of a deal. And right now what you're seeing in China uh, is is normal. It's 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 a mycoplasma. It's a bacteria. We've been testing for it for years. But they're nervous because you get kids over there that are developing white lung, and anybody who's got some sort of pneumonia is going to develop white uh, patches in their in their X-rays when they have an X-ray. So what you're seeing is very treatable. the The big thing to know about mycoplasma is that it's 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 resistant to azithromycin, and that is the most common antibiotic given to kids. But it's very treatable with uh, you know. Uh, really level floxacin, doxycycline, uh, it, it's it's very treatable and not something that we should worry about uh, too much here in the U.S. Is this what they're calling disease X over here? I don't believe so. Uh, you know, I, I never really heard that uh, too much. It, it's what you're seeing there is pockets of um, of children get infected. And, and, and there's a lot of... It, 
people are wondering, is this because we were locked down for so long and the, the kids immune systems a little bit ripe for something and getting sick, but you know, it's, it's that time of the year, it's getting cold. Things are starting to spread uh, up in China as well. So, you know, you start to, and we're coming into the season here in the U S so we're going to start seeing more flus. We're going to start, we're seeing more COVIDs now we're seeing everything is out there. It's floating around. The important thing to know is how to test for it. That's the one thing that uh, Fauci's fiction. If any, anybody asked me if there's one thing I could take away from the book, understanding how testing works and how the medical community uses testing to diagnose these things is very important. Uh, and most people to this day, even almost four years into a pandemic, don't understand the language of, of COVID or respiratory pathogens. They don't understand how testing works. And you would think that after all these years of being in a worldwide pandemic, uh, that the government and media would have been very specific of getting people like us on the air to talk about how they work so that the populace was well informed. All right, so let's talk about um, your uh, your clinics in uh, New Jersey. You were the first medical clinics in the state to start testing for COVID. So walk us through how and why you became the first. Sure. Like I said, it kind of happened by happenstance. My patients knew what COVID swabs were well before the world did, because if, if you had come to us five years ago and weren't feeling well, we were going to swab you and send that off to the lab. At the time, there were about 30 things on our respiratory pathogen panel. Now there are 31 things, thanks to COVID. And I had made that prediction years ago. I said, COVID will be another thing on the panel. So we were well prepared for this. This is something we had tried to train doctors uh, for years uh, to do. Most doctors don't want to uh, send a sample off to the lab, do the extra paperwork, because quite honestly, there's no money in primary care. So mo most doctors will tell you they've got about seven minutes with a patient. And the practice of medicine is just that. It's a practice. Practice. A lot of people guess at what someone has. So when you go to a doctor's office and they do a rapid flu or a rapid strep or now a rapid COVID, they're just guessing after that if those things come back negative. And understanding how those tests work again is very important because we're not properly diagnosing certain respiratory pathogens. So we were doing this well before COVID existed. We happen to have the samples. We happen to have the relationship with the labs. And one of the labs that I work with was one of the first 30 in the nation to get FDA approval to do testing. So they called us up and said, hey, are you interested? We were, like I said, already prepared. And we just wound up being the first out of happenstance. So we're talking about the PCR test here, correct? Correct. All right. So um, Kerry Mullis, who is credited with being the inventor of the PCR test, and many people probably saw uh, his videos, interviews, and so forth on YouTube and, and various other places in, in which he was saying that the PCR test that he invented was not being utilized correctly. It was never intended to you know, the way that it was used. Um, I'm sure you heard those interviews and heard the accusations and basically he said, you know, Fauci was completely out to lunch. Uh, do you care to, to respond to what the late Kerry Mullis was saying about the PCR test? Yeah, I've had this question before because people are very confused about this. And it depends on, like you said, I'll use your words, how the lab was utilizing the test. If you go up too many cycles, you can detect, as he was saying, just about anything in the universe. What PCR does is it looks for a signal and it amplifies that hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of times. So the best way to describe it is that on PCR testing, the sensitivity is logarithmic. It's not linear. So in other words, it, the sensitivity doesn't go one, two, three, four, five. It goes one, then 10 times that, then 100,000, 10,000, 100,000 million, and so on. So the labs that I was working with are, work, are, are going up to level 36. So looking for COVID at level one is kind of like looking for COVID on my cell phone, but looking for COVID at level 36 is like looking for COVID in the solar system. 
at that level, without going too much higher than that, at that level, which the lab thought was appropriate, and th I, I think it is as well, and I'll tell you why, you only need nine copies of a virus to tell me it's in your system, it's replicated, and it's bound. At that point, I can tell you a 100, with 100% 100 certainty that you actually have COVID-19. The reason people were questioning these tests was because, and you would see this with the data, the higher you got on that CT scale, it was called CT value. If you came in between a level 27 and 36, those patients would not have a classical symptom. Most people think that if you are to catch a, a respiratory pathogen, that you are going to develop a classical symptom. We've learned through mass testing that that's just not true. Most people's immune systems are pretty robust. They're healthy. Uh, if you're taking vitamins, you're sleeping well, you would be able to catch COVID and fight that off. I think the disconnect comes with some people understanding what classical symptoms are, because I still have this conversation with patients where they'll tell me they've never had COVID, but their spouse had it and they were very symptomatic. And I would tell them they actually had it uh, because in my data set, you would see that 100% of the time, if someone in the household had it, everybody in that household had it. However, Richard, 90% of my patient population was asymptomatic or mild. Now, it depends on how you define mild, but I'll define mild as really not having a classical symptom. If someone else were to define mild as not needing hospitalization, well, I only had four out of 4,000 positive patients go to the hospital. And most, and that most of the time that wasn't for a classical symptom that was out of fear. Uh, that was out of, you know, they were a little bit older dehydration, things of that nature, but I could take that person who was positive, put it up against 99 other patients the next day. And you got to understand the lab doesn't know names. They don't, they assign an accession number to that sample. That person would then pop positive again amongst 99 other negatives. I could do that over and over repeatable data to show that that signal was still there and that person had it. Some of those people would later develop a classical symptom. Most wouldn't. And again, it would depend on their viral load. I think what, what people don't understand to this day, four years in, is COVID is not just negative or positive. COVID is either negative or positive with caveats. That first caveat being uh, your viral load. It is very important to understand where you are on that scale. The second caveat, Richard, is that most of the people who were sick, who had a classical symptom, would come back with a co-infection. Again, you wouldn't know that unless you were doing respiratory pathogen panels. Most of the people who developed a classical symptom had COVID and something else. Usually it was staph infection, staph aureus. Um, just to give you an example, I had a guy about two years ago, I write about in the book, who had COVID, staph, H flu, and RSV all at the same time. He would not know that if he went and got a rapid test at the Walgreens versus coming into someone like us where we're doing a full panel to see what's going on in his system. And I want to point out, if you don't mind me, I know I'm talking a lot here. It's okay. Um, in contrast, a PCR test versus a rapid test, and this is very important, a rapid antigen test, you need 10 to the 6th to 10 to the ninth power of virus to turn that positive. What does that all mean? Instead of those nine copies of a virus I mentioned at a top level, I need 9 million to 9 billion. So when you pop positive on a rapid, you have enough virus in you to tell me that you are definitely positive for something because a rapid can pop positive for any coronavirus, including the common cold. There are seven we test for in our office. So scientifically, it gives me zero information on a positive, except that you have something and a negative tells me even less because you need so much virus to turn that pot, that uh, rapid test positive. So the rapid tests were useless in other words. Correct. You might as well throw them out. Okay. So what were you seeing at the clinics in the early days when you started testing? Well, we were like everybody else. We're trying to figure this out in real time. So, you know, we're, we're at, at first, 
the first 441 uh, visits we did were home visits. So we were, as everyone else was locked down, especially in New Jersey, which was great, by the way, I had the entire highway system to myself here, <laughs> doing about hundred miles an hour back and forth between patients, but we would go to their homes. We would test them. We'd send them off to the lab. And what we were seeing was uh, quite extraordinary. And you got to remember, put it yourself in our perspective. We're taking precautions where I'm testing people on their porch, PPE. You know, we, we didn't know what we were, we were going to see here. Uh, but when I put the word out that I had access to testing, I got a couple calls and the next thing you know, my phone started blowing up. Uh, on the road, we would see again, 100% of the time, if someone in the household had it, everybody in the household had it. 90% of those who, uh, uh, uh were, uh, were positive were asymptomatic or mild. I'll say 85 to 90% in totality, only 10 to 15% of them either would have symptoms or develop symptoms. Uh, and again, the majority of the ones who had, uh, symptoms usually had a co-infection. That was very important. We noticed that right away. So when you're out testing, you know, a family, a husband and wife who are 75 years old and you're watching the news, you're calling them, telling they're positive, not knowing if you're giving them a death sentence at that point in the early stages. We didn't know if this was going to be like what we were thinking we were seeing in Italy uh, or, or in, in China. So you're calling these patients. And by the way, I called every single positive patient personally. I've, I've made a lot of phone calls um, and I'm following up with them. So, you know, as if they might've had a fever that day, uh, two days later, they're telling me the fever was breaking and they're asking me what, what to do. And I'm going, well, you feel fine. I was, I made a joke and I said, take a cruise. They're cheap. Um, but you would start to see that in grouping. So the first, you know, month's worth of patients, you were then telling the next month of patients, Hey, this is what I'm seeing in my patient load. I wouldn't be so worried. Most of my patients are recovering. They're not going to the hospital. And we used a very basic regimen the entire time. It was vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and electrolytes. That was it. So pretty extraordinary. And while this is going on, by contrast, what are you hearing from the White House and Dr. Fauci? Well, they were always about a year behind in what we were saying, uh, seeing and saying in our office. We would have these conversations with our patients, whether it was about how masks work. Uh, later on, it became about what, you know, the virus, what we expected from the vaccines uh, and how long they were going to last and all that fun stuff. Antibodies, because I have a lot of data on just about everything on COVID. Uh, so we would tell our patients, you know, what we saw on the ground. And meanwhile, we're listening to doom and gloom from the White House. Uh, you know, we were kind of shaking our heads. I mean, it was almost as if it, they were living in a in another world or they weren't getting the information. In a perspective, when, when, when I have people calling me, asking me in March, how long do you think this is going to last? And I'm telling my friends and family, I think they'll figure it out by September because we were kind of early in the forefront of data. Meanwhile, you know, we get to September and they're still doing lockdowns, uh, the extraordinary draconian measures that some people were taking, not just in the U.S., but in Canada. Uh, we're shaking our heads going, how do they not see what we're seeing? And yet every time we try to tell somebody that we'd get shut down, censored. Uh, people would treat you like a pariah. I, I remember early on, I said we should probably develop the Swedish model. And I got ridiculed as if we were trying to kill people when we're saying, whoa, whoa, we need to put the brakes on this because everybody we're treating is recovering quite nicely and they don't understand the perspective. You know, when I got a guy, if I called you, Richard, and said, hey, uh, you're, you're positive and you told me, look, I don't have any symptoms, I'd call the lab and say, what's Richard's uh, CT value? And they run two values per patient. So if they told me 27, 28, 
you start to record that the next patient didn't feel, you know, he, he felt totally fine. He's at 31, 32. The next patient I call who's symptomatic is at 18, 19. You start to see the trends where CT value becomes very important. Also that co-infection where you might've not had something, but the next guy did, you know, you got to remember my data is a little different because we're not just treating sick patients. Sick patients go to the doctor or the hospital. I'm out doing school districts, police departments that are testing weekly. I'm doing assisted livings that are forcing their staff and their patient population to test weekly. So I have what's called horizontal data on thousands of patients. When you test the same police department every single week for three years straight, you get a lot of data on not just testing and CT value and co-infection, but we also did blood work for antibodies before the vaccine came out to see how long natural antibodies would last. We did, uh, we did blood work post-vaccine to see how long the antibody was last after that. Uh, we have data on natural immunity. You, there's so much to unpack when it comes to COVID. The government really did a disservice to the public by not just putting the information out there to make them smarter. Can you give us an example? You said when you tried to get this information out there, uh, you know, talking about the Sweden model, of course, which was, you know, not to lock anybody down. Um, they didn't lock schools down. Um, I don't even know to what extent they masked. I mean, people, you know, just went about their lives. Businesses kept open. And, you know, initially there was a bit of a spike uh, in in uh, in deaths and infections. And people were saying, ah, you see, we're right. But then as time went on, obviously, um, Sweden did much better than than um, than most. But when you tried to get that message out and you were getting shut down, can you give me an example? Did you go to a news outlet, for example, or? Uh, no, no news outlets would really want to talk to us. I, there was a candidate for governor running here in New Jersey, Jack Chitarelli. I've talked to him multiple times. We were kind of in the middle of a gubernatorial campaign at the time as well. So it, when COVID came out, we're in the middle of the presidential, and then the next year it was the gubernatorial. Uh, I'm talking to just about everybody and anybody. And, 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 the, and we weren't trying too, too hard to to go to the media and say, hey, because we were a little worried about getting, getting uh, canceled and censored and shut down as well as a clinic. Um, meanwhile, I mean, my big focus at the time was just trying to work for my patients. We were so busy, sometimes doing hundreds and hundreds of tests a day. I mean, I remember days we would do 400 in a day uh, between multiple nursing homes. It really, it took over our lives. We did nothing but COVID, but we would try to kind of leak things out. I put some things out on social media and, you know, about, that was about the Swedish model. And I got ridiculed right away and said, oh man, maybe we should just kind of go back to our business over here. But I'm thinking that, look, you know, we're doing this every day. And I know there's other folks looking at this just as intently, if not more intently than we are. They've got to figure it out. If we can see the trends within three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, it shouldn't take them three, four, five months to catch up. We went through this for almost three years. Um, th that was a little shocking in the beginning because I don't think I didn't think that anyone would want to sacrifice the um the consistency, the normalcy of our of our just our daily lives uh, to to go further in narrative for what for a political narrative for a, an election for whatever you would think all the conspiracy theorists would throw out there. But after a while, you start to say, well, there had to be some of that going on because this was just too obvious. Um, even now, when I do these interviews, Richard, I, I I did an interview a couple days ago, which got pulled off two platforms within five minutes. I did an interview in the UK a couple weeks ago. They called me right away. As soon as it went up on YouTube, it got pulled off. It's kind of incredible. I 
today, uh, so we'll try to promote this book and I have multiple, um, I, I have multiple distributors, Amazon being one of them. I've tried to spend money on Amazon to sponsor my book. They've sent me three letters back, refusing to do so citing current events. So the censorship still goes on almost four years into this. Wow. Fauci's fiction, the book on COVID, how the government and modern medicine missed the boat on COVID-19 from day one. Dr. Michael Schwartz, my guest, will take a time out, come back and uh, discuss further. Stay with us. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Dr. Michael Schwartz is with us. Entrepreneur uh, owns three medical clinics in both New Jersey and Florida, and his company was the first in New Jersey to start conducting COVID-19 testing. So the trends that you were seeing uh, after those first three months in uh, early 2020, how would you summarize those trends and how they deviated or were in contrast to, you know, what the White House COVID response team was saying? Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, you got a couple things. Well, number one, I mean, I, I'm telling folks at the hospital what I'm seeing on the ground, just testing regular folks, you know, regular people. And the people at the hospital were saying, how, you know, you're, you're nuts because we're putting people in body bags. And I realized a couple things. I realized that uh, number one, perspective is important. Uh, number two, I realized that, you know, ag again, you have to understand where where we kind of were in the beginning stages. There's There's two reasons why people were succumbing to COVID or were with COVID in the beginning. And, and one is novelty. Uh, this virus was novel. It was new. This is not something that we had um, we had ever identified before. So it took a little while and, and the labs were able to catch up and identify it SARS-CoV-2. Uh, 
Um, and two is we didn't know how to treat this thing. So I, I get a little bit of fear and panic in the beginning, but once you start seeing in, in three, four or five weeks that most people had this, um, you, you, I started to wonder why the government wasn't saying, okay, hold on a second here. You know, the mortality rate, we predicted the mortality rate would be very close to what the flu mortality rate was. And it is, and it's funny, you wouldn't, you wouldn't shut down an entire world for a bad flu season, but here we are COVID season. And we pre predicted the numbers, predicted the mortality rate. Uh, and, and meanwhile, the white house has gotten on TV and I mean, they're perpetuating things like masks, which I, I think it was, um, it was the the um, the Surgeon General and Fauci both at the time said, don't wear these things. They're not going to work for a virus and people don't know how to use them. Of course, as soon as Donald Trump said he didn't want to wear a mask, the next thing you know, it was like a political thing. It was like, well, we're going to virtue signal and we're going to wear masks. So, I mean, you're just kind of laughing along the way, but you're, 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 you know, you're raising red flags. The vaccine is when I really started uh, to go. There's there's something more to this government narrative than than what everybody really thinks. Um, we knew that the efficacy rate of vaccines was not going to be uh, 95, 97%. In fact, I, I proposed a hypothesis to my immunologist very early on. And I said, Pramut, I said, when you see the R naught of this thing and how it mutates, I said, don't you think with the flu efficacy, uh, the flu vaccine efficacy about 30, 40%, that in about five months to five years time, somewhere in that window, whether it's a short or long window, the efficacy of the COVID vaccine will come down to about that level. And he said, yeah, I agree with your hypothesis. We talked about this thing, you know, before the vaccines even came out. We even told patients, look, what they're telling you isn't right. You're going to need multiple of these things. You're going to need it at least once a year. And you, you can still catch and you can still give COVID once you've been vaccinated. Use that word loosely again, vaccinated. Um, and I still today have people that will come up to me and say, oh, I, I never had COVID and I never will because I'm vaccinated. <laughs> they just don't realize that everybody in the world has gotten this thing and they've probably had it multiple times and don't even know it. Um, it's just, it's, it's very surreal to me that I have to have the conversation that's in the book with individual patients, because at this point you would think that they have, would have caught up to at least some of society. I get that there's a big picture and that a lot of people need to be educated. Um, but it, it's kind of a shame that the government and media didn't come back and say, Hey, we need to let you know this new information. I, I call that the Fauci effect. People still think that the the information in those briefings early on is still viable today. And science evolves. We learn things as we go on. It's like, it's as if the person read the front page of the paper and didn't read the retraction on page 26, six months later. So very early on, you saw, and then were able to project what the infection rates were going to be. And again, you were seeing this in households. So um, if one person gets it and you've got, you know, six kids and extended family, they're all going to get it to varying degrees. Most are going to be very mild and many may be asymptomatic. So, I mean, that, that argues against lockdowns right there, right? The lockdowns or the, uh, the infections aren't happening necessarily in the schools or uh, elsewhere. They're happening in the home and you're locking people in their home. Right. It's, it's, I tell a lot of anecdotal stories, Richard, to, to exemplify that point. And I'll tell you one that's in the book. I went to a, a kid early on. His name was uh, Ryan. I read about him in the book. He, um, he called me and said, I'm, I'm not feeling well. Could you come over and test? I said, sure. I said, just so you know, when I get there, I'm going to ask you to come out on the porch. Again, we were taking precautions. So I pull up in his, his uh, driveway. I'd put down my PPE. I'd, you know, call him up. He'd meet me outside on the porch. I'd test him. I send the sample off to the lab. So the next day I called him and of course he pops up like a Christmas tree in red and I call him and say, Ryan, you're, you're COVID positive. He says, okay, what do I do? Give him the treatment regimen and hang up. 
Well, 20 minutes later, my phone rings. It's his mother. His mother says, hey, you just called my son to give him a positive. Could you come and test all of us? And um, there was issues at that point about testing people who didn't have symptoms. But uh, data is important to understand. So I, I, of course, I obliged and I went over and I tested the other four of them. Now, the next day, you know, I might have did 17 tests that day and everybody's negative. And here's four that light up on my screen. And it's the family. It's they again, P validity of PCR testing. You can see it in the data as you do it. So I called her up and I said, hey, I just want to let you know you're, you're, you're all positive. And she said, what? I don't, I don't understand. You gotta remember this is in the early stages of COVID. So nobody knows what to expect. So she's going, what do you mean? She goes, I don't understand. I don't have any symptoms. My husband, he, he, he was just a little tired lately. She said, my other son uh, had diarrhea the day before, but it's gone. And my other son's completely, asymptom you know, has nothing either. Are you sure we're positive? And I'm going, well, I, I think so, because I have all these other people that are negative, but the only positives are the one that are living with the positive guy. So you're learning as you go. And, uh, you would notice this and then you would follow up with that family a day or two later. Have you developed any symptoms? And the answer was no. And you would see this over and over and over and over. And again, it doesn't take that long, Richard, to develop and understand trends. I mean, it happens pretty quickly. So, you know, you're doing this for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and you're going, I'm seeing the same exact results every single time. It doesn't take long to figure it out, which is why, again, when I was having people call me and saying, how long is this going to last? I'm going, eh, by September, we'll be fine. And that just didn't happen. Um, but anecdotal stories are important because I want to put people uh, who read the book in my my mindset and my perspective so they understand why we were doing this the way we do it, how we did it in real time and how we developed this. It really brings you through a timeline from, you know, COVID being announced to vaccines. Uh, and now I'm, I'm actually going to start to write a second book. I started already. It's, it's, it's right now working title vaccine fiction, but there's a lot more to the story uh, that we touch on in this book about vaccines. But man, the stuff you learn when I, I've been working with a couple microbiologists and other doctors and PAs and the stuff that you learn um, beyond Fauci's fiction about the vaccines is, is quite mind blowing. So what you were seeing and then able to project I guess extrapolate was the infection rates were going to be like I don't know what what, what, the, what did you extrapolate like ninety percent of the the, the U.S. population? Um, well, it wasn't a percentage of the pot. What I did was when we first did this, and I remember this. Uh, this is a story I wrote wrote about. But uh, my friend Phil, I was down in Florida, and I was imploring him and his wife, they're a little older, to come back to New Jersey. I said, look, this thing's going to blow up. And I, I took a, a green post-it note. And what I did was I had run a regression analysis chart on countries that had, uh, I think it was oh, just over a, a thousand cases, which weren't many at the time when I sat down with Phil, maybe 10 or 11 countries had just over a thousand cases. And we looked at and extrapolated the data to find out at, in that regression analysis chart, what the um, infection rate was going to be, how quickly this was going to spread, the R naught essentially. Now, and that's on pre, you know preliminary data. On pre, you know there was not a lot of testing equipment out there. People weren't really testing for it, so this was an early kind of guess. But those numbers went exponential. And I showed Phil. I said, "This is where I think it's going to be in in a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, then two months, four months, six months." And he kept that post-it note on his 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 table out back. And I remember him calling me up about six months later and says, "How did you know that?" I said, it was just math. All I did was a regression analysis chart based on that early preliminary data to figure out what we thought the R-naught was going to be. 
And that's the thing about COVID. It spreads rapidly. I mean, it really spreads. And, and there's reasons for that. When And that we could get into the conversation about mass and, and particle size and air fluidity. There's a lot to COVID, but it spreads rapidly. The important thing to remember that, though, is, you know, 90% of the people who get it, you know, I mean, don't even develop a symptom. Most people, if you ask them if they've had COVID, they'll either tell me yes or no. The smart ones will tell me uh, one time that I know of or two times that I know of, they start to get it. But it took the world a very, very long time to catch up to what we knew, which is what's so frustrating. We didn't have to go through this exercise. Right. So given the infection rate, and then we look at the mortality numbers, this turns out to be just in terms of the mortality, another seasonal flu, correct? Yeah, it's um, the novelty was a little scary in the beginning because people's bodies didn't know how to react to it. And I can get into B and T lymphocytes. Uh, once we kind of got beyond that and realized that most people were going to survive this without treatment, yes, it's pretty similar to that of flu A, maybe slightly higher than flu A. All right, another time out. Fauci's fiction, Dr. Michael Schwartz. Stay with us. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. Fauci's fiction tells the story of COVID-19 in real time and includes anecdotal stories and personal experiences we can all relate to. The book also explains what a virus is, how testing works, and how the rush to vaccinate everyone in the world may not have been an excellent idea. Um... The um, the VAERS, um, the Vaccine uh, Adverse Event Reporting System, um, when you were, when you would, I don't know if you were, you know, paying attention to that uh, and, and at what point you started to pay attention, but if so, I mean, what, what sort of struck you as you were looking at the, uh, the number of vaccine injuries and so forth? I think the important thing to realize about VAERS is that nobody that I know including my office, has ever reported to VAERS. No one knows how to report to VAERS. No one's trained in it. Uh, I've, I've spoken at length to Deborah Conrad about this. She's helping me out with the uh, second book, and she's instrumental in, in this, this portion of it. And it's important to understand that, that VAERS takes about an hour to put into a system. So if you're a doctor who suspects a vaccine adverse reaction, you then have to find out where they got vaccinated, pull those lot numbers, sit down in front of a computer for for an hour to put this information in. As Deborah will tell you, if you make a mistake during this, it shuts off and goes back. Most doctors don't do this. Um, in contrast, if you look at how COVID numbers are reported, when I would send a sample to the lab, the lab was required by law to report to the state and the county. So the numbers that you saw in the beginning for PCR testing were fairly accurate. What you see in VAERS is probably less than 5% of what's actually out there. And keep in mind, perspective is also important, Richard. Most of the guys who would do the reporting, the guys and gals, um, are the same guys and gals who were recommending the vaccine in the first place. So if you went to a doctor who then gave you the vaccine or got it on the advice of that doctor, that doctor is going to be a little bit cognitively distorted in whether they want to report that to theirs. And I, again, they wouldn't know how to do it in the first place. So that's not going to be a, a push. Uh, so for, for if you have a, a million cases in the world, I'll tell you it's at least 20 times that um, because nobody does it. My, my, my own office doesn't do it. 
Right. I think there was even a Harvard study, and it was also sponsored by the CDC, um, showing it was the the the, uh, the reporting is about one percent, one percent of the actual cases. Right. I I I, I hypothesize it less than five, and one percent would be a a good yeah. guess. Yeah. Wow. Um. So how? I mean, where is what what is Fauci then at this point? Um, is he missing the mark, as you say, or is there, did, did, is he lie, just out, outright lying about, you know, the numbers and the so infection the book, rates and so forth? Yeah, I mean, the book doesn't go there. I don't, I don't present a um, conspiracy theory or a hypothesis about that. I just, what I do is I give you the data. And if you understand the data and you understand the science behind it all, it doesn't make Fauci or anybody, really, Walensky look so good. Fauci's on the cover as a metaphorical cover. Uh, the book is not about Anthony Fauci he's mentioned three times in the book. I get a lot of uh, a lot of the left will will beat me up because they think it's a MAGA hit piece or some kind of, you know, it's a it's propaganda. And I, I try to tell them maybe you should actually read the book before judging the book by its cover. But uh, he really gets the brunt of it for Walensky and, and Burks and, you know, himself because they he was the face. My idea for that cover was, you know, you would watch all those those briefings from the White House. And I had said to my fiance, I said, I just see a, a, a Pinocchio nose coming out <laughs> the more he talks because, you know, leaving information out is just the same as lying, especially when you're dealing with fear. You have people who are sanitizing their groceries. They're wearing multiple masks on planes and, and not seeing their children. If I told you how many birthdays, 90 year old birthdays that I witnessed from, from assisted livings where I was inside doing testing, watching a family through glass that was 30 feet away from the 90 year old woman who was crying because she couldn't see her family because of these draconian rules and regulations. And then later would die, not from COVID, but from isolation and depression or just old age and, and, and being separated. What were we doing? And this was all coming from the top. Uh, the CDC wouldn't have put out recommendations if it wasn't for, for Anthony Fauci leading the charge. And, and to not tell the public that, hey, this, this is a little too much. We're, 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 we're going here full speed and we should have put the brakes on a long time ago is really sad. I mean, most people didn't see it from my perspective. They have their own very unique perspective, but I've gotten to see it from not just my own, but my patients, uh, assisted livings, police departments, people who are out of work, losing their businesses. Uh, you really get to see it uh, again from the 30,000 foot view and it puts COVID in a different light. Uh, hospitalizations um, that were and deaths uh, that were recorded um, from COVID when they were actually with COVID and given the high infection rate, and as you say, people would have multiple pathogens, they would have COVID, they could also have the seasonal flu, they could have something else. Um, what do you, I mean, do you, do you hazard a guess as to what the actual COVID hospitalizations just, just from COVID and, and COVID mortalities might be? Let, let me Let me try to put this in perspective a little bit. If you're in the pool of population that can die in the next five years, a cold can bring it down, a flu can bring it down, COVID can bring it down. I think that's the important thing to remember. If you're if you're susceptible to an illness, uh, try not to get sick. Stay away from sick people. Try to stay healthy. What we saw in the hospitals was a lot of people were going to the hospitals out of sheer panic and fear. Again, we only had four people. Well, technically five. The fifth one went to the hospital because he called me. He was completely fine. 
Uh, he said, should I go to the hospital? I said, no, he was breathing fine. His pulse ox was fine. He had no medical issues whatsoever, but out of fear from watching CNN or MSN, whatever he was watching, he definitely wasn't watching your show, Richard. I'll tell you that much. Uh, he went to the hospital and the hospital turned him away and said, you don't need to be here. Uh, so you had a lot of people going to the hospital. And by the way, I had friends that went to the hospital for other reasons. I had a friend who was going in for surgery, something. Um, it was, it was a, not an elective surgery. It was, it, it was important. And he caught COVID in the hospital. Uh, I, I told people if you want to get away from COVID, stay away from the hospital, regardless of catching that C diff, some of the other stuff that's floating around a hospital. That's just rampant. Um, we had a lot of people, uh, sheer, just panicking over this thing. So I, I, I really can't put a, a handle on the hospitalizations. I will tell you that the people at the hospital for the first month or two, uh, were affected tremendously. Some of these nurses and doctors who were going in on the front lines, I have a lot of respect for them. What I don't have respect for are the doctors who shut their doors uh, during COVID when when the public needed them the most. And these are the same folks that would later start recommending vaccines or something about COVID, but yet had no perspective where they were getting, the, they were getting directive from the CDC. Um, the folks that went to the hospital every day that dealt with this have a lot of PTSD from COVID, uh, from seeing some deaths, from wearing masks. We didn't know how to treat this, Richard. We were venting people too early. We were using flu protocol, uh, which flares COVID up. Who knew, right? Flu pro Tamiflu flares it up uh, in some instances. We see uh, elderberry uh, flaring it up. We we thought for a while that Advil flared it up and then later realized it didn't. So, you know, we were being very careful with our treatment regimens. Once we understood proning, which was one of the most basic things you can do, uh, getting people off the vent early, not I should say not even putting them on because normally in flu, flu protocol, if they hit a certain uh, pulse ox, we would, you know, switch to high flow and then we'd put them on the, on the ventilator. Uh, we learned that the cytokine storm was, was, was bucking the vent. These people were actually dying on the vent because they're, uh, they were having an over inflammatory response and it couldn't handle being on a vent. You're, if you're putting someone, if you're intubating someone, you're also putting them on some kind of, um, a, um, what do you call it? A, a sedative sedative. Thank you. My lost yeah. word there. sedative. So the sedative, it, um, suppresses your immune response, does it not? Not, not in the way we needed it to. Um, it, most people would, we, and we, there was some paper on this early on. There was a doctor, I don't remember the name of the doctor, who did a study and suggested immunosuppressive uh, therapies for this very early on. And it, it worked well. I mean, steroids, uh, you know, we, we do remdesivir, you could switch, uh, do a shot of dexamethasone, anything to calm the system down. We were trying to boost people's immune system. That was actually making it worse. <sighs> by boosting their immune system, it would go on overdrive and the cytokine storm would actually start shutting organs down. But when you're on a vent and you start, it's, it's a crazy thing to see these people bucking the vent, uh, their, their systems would just shut down right in front of healthcare practitioners. And, you know, they're sitting there feeling like they were helpless. We learned a lot of things during COVID. One of the easiest things that we, I talk about in the book is proning. That's a simple act of turning a patient over. Um, I had a lot of, it, what, what happens is your lungs are primarily in your back. So when you lay back, you're, the fluid pools in your lungs and you are you are cutting off areas uh, of oxygen exchange or alveoli or flu, uh, filling with fluid. So when you take that person and prone them and turn them over, and we have these machines in the hospitals called a rotoprone. You would actually do it automatically. And when we ran out of that, you had teams running around, uh, manual proning teams, turning patients over and going through everybody and then turning them back. And that would help drain fluid out of their lungs so they could get oxygen to areas that haven't seen oxygen in a while. And that would bring their pulse ox up uh, tremendously. I mean, I, I had a guy call me up 
he, and most people would buy those pulse oxes. This guy called me up and said, I'm at, I'm at 88 and he's freaking out. Do I need to go to the hospital? So turn over, lay on your stomach for a while, take a nap, call me back in a half hour. He's like, he thought I was nuts. Uh, but when he did, he called me an hour later. He said, I'm at 95. How'd you do that? It was just protocols that we came up with because we saw it worked and it would calm people down, get their pulse ox up. And once you saw the, the, the fever break, usually within about two days, um, most people would recover quite nicely. Um, and, and it's funny because you get into all these different treatment regimens. We could talk a little bit about ivermectin and some of the other stuff that was being used, but most people, like I said, recovered nicely on a very simple regimen of CD zinc and electrolytes. Why couldn't Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks get up, get up in front of the press pool at the white house and say that, you know, Richard, how many lives would that have saved people whose deaths were hastened by the ventilators? There are so many times that I, I said uh, in, in, in these exact conversations that I have with each patient or my staff, why can't we just get up on TV and give a half hour dissertation? It would start with what viruses are, you know, and, and, and timelines to just today. It's, it's, you understand this, it's four years later and most people don't understand the difference between isolation and quarantine. Now I know that sounds very just, you know, it's semantics, but it's important. And I realized that in the first week of COVID because I made a mistake with an epidemiologist and he schooled me. And I realized if we're not all speaking the same language, we're never going to get beyond this thing. We're never going to solve this problem. So what is the difference between isolation and quarantine? I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the, the conversation I have with my patients. I'll call a patient and say, Richard, you're positive. And you might say to me, okay, so what do I need to do? I need to quarantine for 10 days. And I go, no, I say, what did the astronauts do when they came back from the moon? They quarantined in case they were exposed to something that they didn't know about. And they developed something later. You isolate when you're diagnosed positive, you quarantine when you're suspected of being around something that you might develop. And I, I realized that because I told an epidemiologist, I used the word quarantine. He said, you don't quarantine when you're positive, you isolate. And he schooled, like I said, he schooled me and I went, my, my, I will never make that mistake again. And I, and, and it's so important language, the little things are when you're in a worldwide pandemic where everybody thought we could die. I mean, we disrupted school lives. Like I said, suicide rates went up we can't speak the same language on this thing. At, at some point it becomes irresponsible when the government and media are just saying whatever they want for the sake of saying it. And when you see a death count on the screen on CNN or MSNBC, I mean, Fox had it up for a while too. You start to realize, man, this thing is, I think this is more about ratings and fear. Um, well, look, we don't wear masks for viruses. We just don't. Okay. Um, this, this vaccine we knew wasn't a traditional vaccine right from the start. Uh, that wasn't explained to people and you still have people out there. I, I see it every day on planes, people wearing masks, people running out for boosters. I mean, this thing's proven to not work. It, it, we, we were talking about breakthrough cases a month into vaccines. We never used that term in our office because we knew you could catch COVID just as easily and give COVID once you've had the shot. So we never use that term because we we found the term to be inappropriate, just like we found wearing masks in our office to be inappropriate. We would rather teach our patients real science and talk them off a ledge and have them live their lives rather than live in fear all day. Fauci's Fiction, the book on COVID. How do we get a copy? Well, if you can find it, it is available just about everywhere. And like I said, Amazon is still giving me issues, but Amazon's the easiest place to find it. Uh, if you just search the book Fauci's Fiction, uh, you will find it somewhere. Are we going to make all these same mistakes again, Mike? Last chapter in the book, I actually hypothesized that. And I said, if we, if we did today, uh, I think we'd handle it the exact same way because we haven't really learned much 
from the last three to four years. And we really need to understand this first before we move on to the next, because uh, it's scary. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 